But I would say the first time I, I really noticed my love for music was hearing Michael Jackson's Thriller. My family and I, we were on a trip to see my grandma up in Northern California, around Vallejo, California. There's a Walmart nearby. We went to Walmart, blah, blah, blah. I forgot what we were getting. Probably some food or something for barbecue or something like that. My mom bought the Thriller 25th anniversary CD. Back when the cars had the CD drive in it. She puts it in. The first thing that comes on. Like the wannabe starting something beat. Now it's just in all like, what the, what is this? And you hear that high voice. Like the, the silky high voice with the rhythm. And hmm, Michael Jackson's soul up in there. Oh, that was the first time I paid attention to music. And after that, I was just like stunned. I just wanted to know everything about Michael and all the stuff that he would do. Stereotypes don't tell the whole story. I'm your host, Annie Prafke, and you're listening to Misfits, a podcast featuring discussions with people who felt like black sheep in their communities because of their identity. Also, quick plug for Next Door Villain Podcast, which is a super cool show about empathizing with your favorite fictional villains, hosted by my podcast friends, Joe and Tiana. In their most recent episode, I come on as a guest to discuss Lady Eboshi from one of my all-time favorite Studio Ghibli movies, Princess Mononoke. I'll put the link to that episode of Next Door Villain in Misfits Podcast Notes. And no, this is not a paid partnership, it's just an awesome show that you should totally listen to. Salvador Sal Alvarez is a musician and producer based in the California Bay Area. Sal, who uses he, him, and they, them pronouns, was raised by immigrant Mexican parents in San Francisco. On today's episode of Misfits, Sal talks family, overcoming self-doubt, and finding inspiration for his music. Oh, and he's another graduate of my alma mater, St. Olaf, in Northfield, Minnesota. So if we start talking about Olis or Olaf, you'll know what we're referring to. We had talked before and you'd sent me some stuff. You kind of said that your parents were in survival mode, I'd say, mm-hmm. as immigrants just coming over, trying to make it, adjust to a new country, new language, new system, all these things. And then they have kids too. And that's a yeah. common theme that I hear from other immigrants who come over and kids of immigrants. And so I think there's that layer of, you know, you grew up in a different situation. And then there's also the layer of that generational difference, right? As you said, mm-hmm. we grew up in the, the internet information age, social media, and just kind of the possibilities for things that you can go into are so different from our parents' generation. You know, they saw, oh, the people who make big money, that's doctors, lawyers, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. then there's everyone else. And I think for our generation, it is a little bit different. Like there are a lot of other avenues in the creative realm to, to make a living. And I think that just is completely beyond the the comprehension of most people in our parents' generation. Yes, that is 100% true. It's not just a view, right? Like I, that could, that's always been a very, uh, a lonely perspective. I've always thought that, ah, shoot, I'm just so different from 
my parents and like everyone thinks that I should be like a doctor or do an engineer. My dad even was like pushing to be, he's like, be an electrician. You know, realistically, we live in, in a society now where people create, can create their own avenues. It's really just an art of paying the bills creatively. And everyone's always had to do that historically in the last, you know, in the last hundreds of years here and anywhere they go to, but especially like as a result of both of my parents moving to a whole new country, having to adopt a whole new language and understand how a system works within that lifetime of theirs. There's only so much that gets done. There's nothing in the universe that stops people from doing certain things other than the experiences they've had and kind of the places they've been put in financially because of wherever they started. So I, I would say for where my family or my parents were at when they got here was the, to me, the best that they ever could do. And I'm noticing now as I'm getting older, it's like, yeah, I do see a different way of life. Like the world's so big. I can, I can move to, you know, study in France and that's what I want to do. Get my master's. And to them, they're like, are you crazy? Like that requires money. And I'm like, you know, realistically, it's more expensive to get your master's in the United States and I can go legally over there. I mean, you guys came here, but not legally. Like, who is anybody to tell me that I can't do that? But, you know, I see three ways of living life. At least I do. And it has been helpful. Uh, the first way is there's a bit of survivorship that people have to adopt, which can mean finding a stable workplace or a stable career or having some kind of stable income in some way, shape or form. And being willing to just do that for the rest of their lives, not really determining what they do with the time, the essence of their time. It's the biggest sacrifice. And they live for something else, whether it's their child or their dog or their grandparent or their parent who might be sick. That's, that's a survivorship. And I see that manifest in a lot of people I've met. The second one is kind of where what most people in moving to America idealizes having the house and having the stable nuclear family and having a stable career in a field of interest or a field that was studied because that's what they studied and that's what they're going to do. This mindset is, you know, the settlement mindset. The settlement mindset to me means like just doing enough and doing what you've always been told is the right way to do things. I could never accept that. So I look for something more. And freshman year at college, I ran into a YouTube page. It's very random, but this one guy, it's a page called Fight Mediocrity. And he talks about these developmental books and the, the message behind a lot of them were to develop a person's mindset for the third thing, which is like a striving mindset for me. The striving mindset is an example of like people that came from the ground up. They came from nothing. And like, regardless, they could care less. Like they're the ones that are going to define the path for themselves. These are the people that influenced me the most were people I've never met, you know, musicians and maybe a couple of CEOs or creative people. A lot of them did have jobs and probably came from rough upbringings. But that mindset is what got them to where they're at. 
because they were able to carve their own path and learn new things. And as a result of carving that that path, I feel like they've had to be the most meta and the most, I guess, open to change and the most disciplined. So the reason I bring these three mindsets up, the survival mindset, the settlement mindset, and the striving mindset is this is kind of how a lot of societies determined here in the US. A lot of us first gen, second gen people are kind of stuck in the survivor's mindset only for education or something that happens in our lives or some inspirational YouTuber to change us to come along and change how we think in order to to become more of a, a striving mindset person to change that. Then it happens maybe in one or two, three, four generations. What no one talks about the same way I'm going to talk about it right now is that there are people here I'll just call them people. Um, I don't want to say exactly who because it's different everywhere we go in any country, but there's a majority where they are multi-generational. And as a result of that and a couple other things, there's a lot of privileges that come with that. A big portion of that is the mindset. A lot of them already have an established settlement mindset and feel an entitlement to do so when they're growing up. Or all they think about is the striving mindset. Because that's second nature to them. Because mom and dad had that. Because grandma had that. Because my uncle Finn or my uncle Celio had that. I use these three categories as a way for me to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to go from survivor to the striving mindset right away. I I don't want to wait. You know, if I'm going to raise any nephews or nieces or any kids of my own, I, I, I would like for them to have exposure to at least what the, the striving mindset is, the, the, the most advancing mindset for a person's lifestyle. It's the hardest one to obtain when all you know is survivorship. And the second thing that people hardly get to is, is that settlement of, of wanting to have a home and things like that. Again, all these things are shaped uh, by kind of what I've seen growing up and, you know, what I've encountered, but not everyone would seize the world this way, but it is how I've seen, at least in American society, how the world works. If there's a huge financial divide and lifestyle divide among different people and especially different cultures. And I think a part of it I don't want to say all of it or a huge portion of it, but a, a big part and an important part of what has currently put a lot of us back can be used as a way for as end of individuals to move forward is to realize that we're many generations behind in mindset and being aware is one way to actually step up the mindset, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. I think the the clearest example I can think of is friends of mine who are in the medical field who want to be doctors and physicians. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of them have someone in their family who is a doctor or physician or in the medical field. And I think that not only comes with that mindset that you're talking about, but also just social capital and resources. It's like, oh, because my parents are doctors, it's like, oh, they can help me get an internship. They know the best mm -hmm. schools to go to, to for med school. They can help me study for things. They have the money to get me there. And of course, that's not every case. I know I know people who are going to be doctors and no one in their family has, has had those opportunities. Mm -hmm. But I think it's much easier to enter into a field like that and to have that mindset and to have those resources when there's already people who've done it before you and you see it as a possibility for yourself and you have access to those things. So I think that's interesting that you're kind of choosing the, to, to change the mindset in order to kind of like bypass that. So I think that's really cool. A note is as a result of me wanting to 
adjust my mindset to strive for more and to create a path of my own and to be aware of that does not mean to let go of my culture, right? I'm still very, very like, tengo mucho orgullo por ser mexicano, you know, 100%. Well, I was born here, so maybe not 100% on everybody's eyes. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming even more knowledgeable and more proud of that so just wanted to mention that para los que están yeah. escuchando <laughs> yeah yeah well i want to hear a little bit what kind of unites your family now despite all these differences food and holidays mainly yeah those are, those are the times we're physically closer i think all of us are kind of at a point where we're individually trying to figure ourselves out which is a blessing if there's been a pandemic there was a lot of turmoil and it's left us kind of to ourselves to think a bit about who are we? Where do we want to be? So I think naturally right now we're kind of individualistic a bit and food, good food or holidays bring us together as they should. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's Mother's Day. So I know you're going to visit your mom after this and bring her a cake. So hell yeah, that's a good example. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to Sal Alvarez on Misfits podcast. Sal is a musician and a music producer. And he says music has always been a big part of his life. Up next, hear him talk about the first time he became interested in pursuing music as a career and about the artists that continue to inspire him. Music's always been around. My parents, visibly, there's pictures where they've always put headphones over my head to put me to sleep. I remember learning my first song. Probably I was two or three when I first learned how to speak, speak. And it was in Spanish, Banda Pelillos. It's a song called, I think it's called Creí which means I believe or I thought. But I would say the first time I really noticed my love for music was hearing Michael Jackson's Thriller. My family and I, we were on a trip to see my grandma up in Northern California, around Vallejo, California. There's a Walmart nearby. We went to Walmart, blah, blah, blah. I forgot what we were getting, probably some food or something for barbecue or something like that. My mom bought the Thriller 25th anniversary CD back when the cars had the CD drive in it. She puts it in. The first thing that comes on, like the wannabe starting something beat. Now it's just in awe, like, what the, what is this? And you hear that high voice, like the, the silky high voice with the rhythm and mm, Michael Jackson's soul up in there. Oh, that was the first time I paid attention to music. And after that, I was just like stunned. I just wanted to know everything about Michael and all the stuff that he would do. That, that set the bar for me with music. Anything creatively or detail wise below that was hard for me to appreciate why do you think you liked michael so much i would say the attention to detail but like the first thing was rhythm the second thing was authenticity which was like when he would say lines he would say them like he meant them you know maybe it was the tone that he delivered with or uh i don't know it's just i would say like it was it was it was a visually it was a every song from michael jackson was a visual experience you didn't even have to watch the music video to have that experience. The symbols and the way everything was panned, either you hear that drum on the left or you hear that kick on in the middle and the, the vocals harmonizing on your left and right behind your head. It was designed perfectly to encapsulate you in that experience. I have a feeling that Michael was so aware of all of that and he knew how to do it with everything he did. Also like rhythm. Rhythm is so big to capturing attention and having a theme. 
But I would say the biggest thing, branding. That was not the word I used when I was a kid, but later I learned that that was the biggest thing. When you think Michael Jackson, as a someone who might have listened to the music, you think the glove, the silver glove, you think the hat, you know, you probably think of the sparkly socks, you probably think of the moonwalk. These are all pillars to the Michael Jackson brand. And a lot of artists were just making music and doing their thing. But now we're much more aware of that where everyone's kind of building a brand and telling a story and being a character. Prior to Michael, there was Elvis, but Michael was one of the first to brand himself incredibly as an artist. And the music is timeless. That's music, I would say at least with the Thriller album. Uh, bad album is also pretty good, the bad. Those two, well, there's other ones too. Off the Wall was pretty good. But those three albums in that time period were definitely really well made and deviated a bit from the times. They don't necessarily sound like they're from the 80s or the 70s. They're inspired by them, but you can listen to it now or a kid could listen to them 50 years from now and be like, have an impression on it. Like, wow, who made this? You know, it kind of stands the test of time. I think the branding point is really interesting too, because like you said, Michael Jackson has just a very iconic look. And something that I think mm -hmm. is interesting about him, and I think you could put Prince in this category too, is they're kind of like playing with gender in interesting ways. Ooh, you know, you, yeah. like, I think you could argue a, a more effeminate look, but you know, I mean, there, there have been other things too, but outwardly expressed that he was heterosexual the whole time. And and same with Prince, I believe, but was really like doing some other things with the, the sparkly coat, like you said, the kind of like slim, sleek clothing, the high voice, you know what I mean? And so I think that's interesting. And I think it's interesting, his very wide appeal in a time where playing with gender, I'd say was a lot less acceptable. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, that's the first time I hear anyone bring that up in conversation about uh, Prince and Michael. I, I've heard it about Prince, where he's very androgynous, meaning he's very com like it could be confusing for people. Like, is is he like at least from the older generation? Is he gay? Is he is he a, is he a this? Is he a that? And it's like, well, you know, he's presenting himself, but he's doing a great job at making you think about him. So very very ahead of their time, both of them. I, Prince is also more recently, I would say, an influence of mine. Yeah, their attention to detail and their ability to carve a path and be different, not not necessarily be stuck in, oh, what kind of music's being made right now, was incredible. They, they defined the sound of what came next every time they dropped something. Other artists as well, but I would say those two, for, they came in my life at times that I needed to hear that there were humans walking on this earth that can be that incredible in their art and, and do it their way. Doing it their way was the, the coolest thing. I, I do have to ask with, with Michael Jackson, kind of the question of if we can separate the person from the art and the music that he made, because as I'm sure mm -hmm. you've heard, there have been some controversies in the last few years with uh, allegations of, of child abuse and sexual assault of, of children. Yeah. Uh, and that's a tricky thing. And I, I've listened to, I remember when it first came out, I listened to a lot of like podcasts and news articles. And it's like you said, Michael Jackson is so influential. If we were to cut out all of his music, it's like we wouldn't be able to listen to any music made from then to today because you almost can't listen to a song that doesn't have inspiration from him. It's just everywhere. And you can't deny that he was a brilliant artist and that mm -hmm. his music just completely altered how, how music is today. But it gets tricky just knowing his background and who he was as a person. Yeah. Do you feel like 
I don't know, do you feel like you have to kind of make a separation between knowing that and kind of the music that he makes? Or do you see it all as kind of connected? Um, I do myself the favor of separating that uh, and appreciating the art. One thing I notice about a lot of artists or some of the most creative people that I've met is that they have a big like they have a very, very incredible way of like polarizing their own character. Like there were people at Olaf that were in the music major world and they were very, very one, one way some days and very, very different in others. And whenever they would perform, it's like they would kind of phase out, kind of focus and dial in. That's always been fascinating, the psychology of people who can do that or just do that naturally. It's always been fascinating to me. But it does come at a cost. So I would say Michael was one example and the biggest, obviously, of that polarity. So I, I do recognize that as like Michael's lovable to a point and other artists who have their star has fallen as a result of that polarity and how it's resulted in negatively affecting the world or how people see them and like their influence being kind of destroyed a bit because of that. That, I would say, ties into my second biggest artistic influences, which are the two Frenchmen, Daft Punk, which, in a way, they also had a bright star, but they were different in the sense that they kept away that other polarity. Maybe they had a different side of them, but managed to have a very incredible wall built around them using branding. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, characters like they're you said. characters yeah so uh not to deviate too much from michael because michael yeah like they're they're and, and and again it's like yeah you can you have to appreciate and, and, and look at yourself too as an individual like you know there are things about me people are always going to appreciate and other things not so much and now we live in a day and age where everyone's kind of exposing pretty much either everything or only one side and that one side is to the extreme, right? Like, oh, my life is great. And you can't see the other stuff. Like, I'm fighting with my spouse and all that stuff. I don't know. It's just we live in, in a very visible time. And um, the people that have been getting stars for me to navigate that and, I guess, be human and transparent, but also being respectful and, like, actually being a good human being has come from those two guys. Like, the Daft Punk guys have, in in their time, like have always been known for being mysterious and no one understood why. Now, 20 years, 30 years later, I do understand why. It is hell to be known and have people only think of you in one way and that way only. And it's like, then society kind of treats you like that and that's it. So, uh, shoot, I don't know. I kind of went on a ramble there a bit. I don't know if that made any sense. No, well, I, I think if we kind of transition, I think it's interesting. You like a lot of... I mean, I'd say Daft Punk is a pretty international, has an international yes, appeal. Very international. But you also like uh, Strome, who is actually Belgian, but he sings in French. And uh, Marion, I, I don't speak French, oh, but he's Marion. French. So. Marion? Marion? Ma he just says it like with an English accent. He has, a, he has like a British accent. Oh, um, Marion? So a lot of international stars. What? How did you discover these people? They're, you know, they're pretty big in Europe, but I think maybe here, medicine people would know. And then what drew you to them? Yeah. So I accidentally discovered the Daft Punk guys um, over YouTube. I think I was like, I want to say I was probably like 13 or 14. And um, I was just like 
chilling and uh one of the videos i don't know what i was watching like a card an animated something and there was a copyrighted attachment of one of their songs harder better faster stronger with the beat and i was like "Ooh, this is funky this is cool but it also had an element of nostalgia i'm like where have i heard this before you know bop in my head like where have i heard this before and the artist name is in the bottom misspelled it was spelled incorrectly but then i typed it in and it corrected it and the first song that came up was a song called one more time i was like this sounds familiar the title itself is there a song like in my subconscious i said it i started playing it and i was shook i was taking them back like what the hell i probably heard this when i was like riding around my mom's car when i was a little baby it was in my subconscious after that i was hooked i was like i need to watch other music videos they were all on youtube and um yeah, so that and they had their their uh, pyramid live show, which has gone down as one of the greatest uh, live shows in history. And actually, just to point this out for all you EDM lovers out there who are into all the hard ass music now, but the originators of these incredible light shows of the electronic music scene are Daft Punk. The pyramid was their stage, which was all. It was the first time anybody had produced anything like that curated and that well-lit and that well-produced, which later became something timeless of theirs. Which Yeah, the whole they're amazing performers. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they took a very basic format of just standing there and made it cool for a live setting for a world tour. The Madion, he came along when I was in high school. I accidentally discovered him through a video he put out, which went viral. If you type in Madion Pop Culture... It's him playing on like this thing called a launch pad. I don't know if I have one on me. I don't have it with me right now. I a think launch... I was just learning about it. Yeah, it's like the um, it has the sixty-four buttons that light up. You can program them to make any kind of noise or do a specific control within your audio production software. Specifically, the software it's called Ableton. Ableton Live. He basically took I want to say thirty-nine different pop songs that he liked and made a whole cohesive song of his own with elements of his own production in that and those things are amazing because like basically it's like a series of 36 buttons you have to memorize where each sound that you like code to that button is mm -hmm. and then you they might have like one set and then they have a whole other set of other sounds connected to that and then they switch back and forth so it's like basically you have to learn how to play an instrument every time oh yeah 36 different strings and and notes that you connect together. So I watch those things and I'm just like way over my head, but it's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, he was about 16 when he did that, that video, 17. And um, I want to say it dropped somewhere like 2010, 2011. That inspired me to be like, oh, I'm young. I can also do this. How do I learn how to produce? So I just started trying to figure it out. How do people make music? How is this a track recorded? How does this get put out there? How does the music video like it just it sparked my curiosity michael jackson and daft punk they were cool and well-branded and almost untouchable maddion made it seem more feasible and possible for me to actually do it myself i was like you know what this seems really cool let me let me actually try to learn this stuff so i, I just started teaching myself from there strome that dude is very very uh very cool in the sense that um he's very himself but also hmm Another androgynous character, too. He has a couple of songs where he plays the role of the, the man and the woman in a relationship and how they, they get along, but there's always conflict. But then they get along in this conflict. The song is called Tous, Tous Les Mêmes. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. And um, really provocative music video. I know. Well, most of them are pretty pro- provocative in a way. And yeah. So yeah, Stromae, uh I accidentally discovered rediscovered him actually in um in my freshman year at, at Olaf. And it was I was bored. I think I was just like, ah, I want to look up like a tutorial on how to make beats or something. And his old video that he had made about him producing Alorondance came up. Like he has his little keyboard and he's making the beat and he's like talking about how it went international in in the in a humble way. He's very humble. But I had rediscovered that video in college and it led me to actually pursue his music. Like, what else does he have? What else does he have? And I just became addicted. I was like, wow, this is so cool. He was going to tour. And I had barely discovered him around the time he was going to come to Minneapolis. He was supposed to show up to Minneapolis, but I think he got into like a car accident. So he didn't show up to Minneapolis. So teardrops, I didn't get to see him. Sadly, he stopped touring after that tour. But recently, he's touring again, which has been a huge shock. And it's been a big smile on my face this summer. Because I bought a ticket. I'm about to go see Stromae. He's another artist that I discovered through the subconscious. Is that I had heard about him before. But later on he came back. And he came back at full force. I embraced all the all the art he was doing. And why. I, I, I don't know. There's a million reasons why. I liked his art a lot. But I think his personality. He's, he was just this goofy guy. Like a simple simple person. With ideas and creativity. And he just did it his way. And he also comes from like. A very dual background. He's half, I want to say half Rwandan and um, half Dutch. I think he's half Belgian. Yeah. He yeah. has a mixed background. Yeah. yeah. So he's half black. Yeah. 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 And he's half Rwandan, half um, half Dutch, but born and raised in, in Belgium, speaking French. Oh, okay. Dutch. You probably know him. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he speaks like four or five languages. That was also new to me too. Like, wow, why does he speak so many languages? When I studied abroad, I learned most of the world typically speaks a lot more languages than here. So America needs to step it up. Yeah, but yeah, so those are the four. Quick update on the Stromae concert. Sal still hasn't seen him perform, but he does plan to go to his San Francisco concert later this month. In addition to making music, Sal also organizes music events. In 2016, Sal created a campus-wide music festival at St. Olaf College called Urban Sound, which strove to showcase diverse musical experiences representing cultures and music beyond the rural Midwest. About 350 people showed up, which at our tiny liberal arts college is a pretty impressive turnout. The event was such a success that Sal held another Urban Sound Fest in 2019. St. Olaf ran an article about the event, which you can find in the episode notes. Up next, Sal talks about putting on this event and how it has impacted his career trajectory. My freshman year, I hosted Urban Sound at uh, Lion's Paws at St. Olaf. My reasoning behind it, so Urban Sound was kind of a low-key to medium-sized music showcase, or I guess you can call it like a concert or music festival. I didn't really have a title for it, of different student musicians on campus. And at that time, what I wanted to do is I wanted to say something with it. When I started at Olaf, I had, you know, a couple of friends tell me about join MEC, which is the Music Entertainment Committee. Or for other people that go to other colleges, it's the music programming board for Concerts. They're the ones that host 
the spring and fall concert. They're the ones that reach out to these big artists that you need to give them the budgets and all that stuff. I was a part of that promoter. It's basically a promoter entity. So I noticed a lot of, I noticed that a lot of the members of MEC at that time were not representative of the full St. Olaf campus culture and background. It was a lot of one genre mindset only like, oh, we got to bring in this grungy artist and we got to bring in this alt music folk singer from, you know, small town, Minnesota. Nothing against small town, Minnesota vibes. I learned to love them. And there's a second home for me in my ears for a lot of singer songwriter folk music now. But at that time, it was not representative of Olaf at all. I was like, statistically... In my marketing class, we're studying that Olaf is actually doing everything in their power to bring at least 2% more diversity every single year. Like that is, that, that's factually what's happening. But this is not a, a place that's, that's mirroring that. It's not reflecting that. So I was like really, really connecting with a lot of people from the cities and from Chicago and like other places that were more urbanized. And I was like, hey guys, like, I feel like we need something that's more hype, more cool, more lit. We need, I don't know what it is. It's just, there's a certain energy and charisma behind the genres that were not being represented. So what I ended up doing was in my mind, I was like, we need to put on like a show or something. It needs to put like a hip hop artist. We need to have like, like the Ed Sheeran of like, of, of Olaf. And I knew that, like, I don't know if you remember Paolo now goes by Maya, but they were very talented singer, performers, musician, amazing. And we we're very close that year. I think we kind of like, we don't talk as much anymore. I tried to reach out, but uh, at that time I was like, you need to perform and we need to put you on stage. Like everybody loves you, but let's give you an audience and trust me, like it'll be super lit. Da, 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 da. I basically pitched the idea of doing this urban sound event to like, I want to say 10 people. And we only ended up keeping six performances, one of which actually included Dylan performing as well. Um, shout out to Dylan. Form former interviewee. Yes, that was fun. Um, it was a lot of work to put this thing together, but ultimately it ended up happening naturally. I pitched it to MEC. I said, I have this idea where we have students performing and I will market it. I will design all the artwork and I will do all the marketing and all this stuff. Like I, I, it's just me. Like, let me just put my mind out there and like, trust me, it's going to be a cool event. Trust me. Trust me. It was a lot of disbelief for this to be a viable idea. And like, they were always questioning my process and putting it together. They were questioning why I wanted to book it. And it was just like, Okay, we're going to do this. We booked it. They asked for the name. Last minute, I came up with a phrase. Uh, Just call it Urban Sound. I didn't think too much about the name. I just came up with it last minute. And um, the day came. We made it happen. All the lights and everything. Production was like, I had designed it beforehand because I was also a pause tech. Yeah, the vision came together. All the elements that I had learned from like Michael and Daft Punk, like especially the live performances that they had. I noticed that everything was in the details. Like when people walked in, what were they listening to? That playlist was curated. When they walked in, how much of the haze was already settled in for people to see the lights and the beams moving a certain way? When they walked in, like where were people sitting and standing? All of that led to the, like, for me, it was like a, I wanted to curate that environment. And I did. And people following that, I, I I don't know exactly like what people took from it. But all I know is that the next year we have Vic Mensa and people like Lizzo come and it started to change a bit. Like, I think there was a consensus, like understanding that, shoot, something was being missed here. There was a need for events that were more in touch with what's going on right now. Like 
and more in touch with the students that are coming in. They're coming and we're coming in from all different parts of the world, not just local Midwest, you know, shout out to those vibes. It's just that this is the administrative college's goals, but the campus culture has yet to align. And that was kind of something I wanted to do for us to collectively align uh, culturally and make it feel more like a home for people like me and people that would listen to hip hop, R&B, pop, you know, like reggaeton, whatever was on that stage that night. Do you think hosting that event affected where you see yourself going in the future and where you are now? I would say like what I'm doing now is, you know, I already graduated three years ago. I graduated in 2019 pandemic happened and I wanted to get more into the live aspect of music. I've always enjoyed those spaces where people come together and they're experiencing something together. You see everyone's faces light up when the artist comes out or ah, that one song. I just got hooked to that feeling. Uh, and while I did always focus on wanting to be an artist, that's become secondary now. My focus now is creating experiences for people like that who show up and maybe they learn something new or maybe they found value in that or maybe it inspired them to do something completely different with their lives or listen to a new artist. Those moments need to happen and post-pandemic even more so. We got so isolated and so tired of not being with one another. Concerts were like the cure for a lot of us and especially for me. I've been going to more shows now and am planning to see Stromae and The Weeknd and Joja Cat as well. Shout out to Doja. So now, because of my experience with promoting and talent buying and doing that through MEC and uh, also being a pause tech, I was a pause technician for four years. Like I learned a lot on the job and how to negotiate and talk to people and ask for certain things and plug everything. In. Like I just learned what was required of the technical aspect of concerts, both indoor, outdoor. I had learned what was required of the marketing and sales behind putting an event together through MEC and the performative aspect too. I did um, Viking chorus and a uh, chapel choir at Olaf too. So preparation is so important for anything like performative. And those things now culminate in me wanting to kickstart my own promoter business. Like I want to create timeless experiences for people. Nowadays, you see a lot of artists blow up on platforms like TikTok. They're coming up quick. Their branding has to be done on the spot, like fast. It doesn't leave a lot of room for crafting the story and crafting uh, the authenticity of the artist anymore. An artist is just liked because they're liked, because they have that one video or because they were talking smack on so-and-so. So there's been a, a shift in the focus creatively and where the money goes, but there will still always exist timeless art and there needs to be a focus on that. And there also needs to be a focus on live experiences. But the way I want to do it is let's do, let's combine those two focuses like live, but then it's also provide something that people can look back on five, 10, 20 years from now and be like, I was there. I remember when I was at that show. And as far as my close friends have told me, they, remind me that urban sound was valuable to them, which means that that was my first trial and error of creating a timeless life experience for people is that it started with, why am I doing this? I answered that why. Now I just got to do it. We made it happen. People found value in it. And 
that's more meaningful to me at the end of the day. Now, and I don't know if this was the next question, but my full-time job is a program leader and mentor for uh, this organization in San Francisco um, that serves different grade levels. I work in the high school division, meaning that I'm full-time at high school. I'm working with teenagers after school and during school to help with their academics, help with programming events and leading club activities, and just being sort of a a mentor role for them on a day-to-day basis. I want to do my best to communicate value to them and always just to be a listener first. Like, how can I take whatever I've learned and whatever I've experienced and help you figure out your experience and how you have the power to shape it? Like, I do notice that teenagers get told what to do all the time or like, you know, they're being so influenced by everything. It's hard for them to really choose and, and they don't know what's authentic to them yet. But likewise, they're receptive to new things. And for me, the biggest thing is like, I want to make sure that their decisions in life are timeless almost. Like they'll look back on it and think about, I made the right decision. So I don't know. I, I think that, that I, I use that word a lot, timeless. But to me, timeless is so important because it's a culmination of like the people I've looked up to. My heroes helped me kind of escape a lot of stuff um, that I was growing up with that didn't make sense to me that I was like, "Ah, this is not like, I don't want to be doing certain things and dealing with this and finances. Daft Punk and Marion. And I would say even like Michael's, their art and Stromae's craftsmanship and on their art always focused on, will this be something that's important to me five, 10, 20 years later? And, you know, maybe not objectively to some, but like subjectively, it has like some people still find value in this music because it started with why, why are we doing this? And I do want to do that through concerts and through the mentorship I'm providing for my students. Think about, you know, where your life is going five, 10, 20 years from now, you'll look back and be like, oh, wow, I did do that. Or I'm glad that I was involved in this project or this experience. Cause yeah, no, there's, there's a lot of that that's not being purveyed right now. Cause it's all about social media. Quick, quick, quick. Make that money. Get your career fast. Get on the Bitcoin. You got it. <laughs> it's just a little crazy right now, but it's nice to slow down a bit. That was Sal Alvarez talking about his music festival, Urban Sound. Up next, Sal opens up about self-doubt and what makes him a misfit. Do you think anything is holding you back from pursuing your dream right now? To be very honest, my dream has been kind of fuzzy lately. I'm not sure what direction I'm going in, but it's totally fine. It's kind of a product of the whole pandemic and being in my 20s. I'm reading this book right now. Shout out to my boy Ezra Garcia. Oh, from Olaf? Yeah. It's my guy. He's that's that's like my brother. We're we our families are from the same like city, you know? So maybe oh, we might even be related. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Putting it out there. That's my brother. No, what was I saying? He gave me a book. It's uh forgot the name of it. It's like right over there, but I'm too lazy to grab it. So it talks about the development in your 20s and how you should take advantage of certain things while you're in your 20s. Like the fact that there are no obligations to raise a child for some of us. I know some people already pursuing that. Um, and uh, instead of focusing on the fact that we have so many options and wow, I don't know how to pick, we should start building our identity capital, which means developing who we are by doing stuff and trying new things and liking what we do and working on becoming better at what we like to do. So what's stopping me from um, probably a little bit of fear? Like I am scared to 
run out of time. It's kind of a stupid fear. I'm scared that there'll be, that I'll cut ties with family. You know, on my subconscious, I think about my family. Like I have kept my distance a bit because I want to focus on me and I want to focus on what I can do. And maybe as a result of that, give back to them. But no, just, yeah, I'm just a little bit of fear. And, you know, the pandemic and the financial side of that also. Yeah, Yeah, I think there's just a lot of anxiety of our generation. There's a lot of things going wrong in the world. And in addition to all of the challenges we have, just like figuring out who we are and what we want to do. So Mm. I can relate to all of that. It's a quarter life crisis nearly every day. But (laughs) yeah, um, so I, I would like to direct this question back to you. Like, do you feel that you're on track for what you have in your sights? And um, if not, and you feel like you're deviating, or if there are days that come up where it's like, man, I don't got this. I really don't. And you have to talk yourself out of it. Like, what what do you feel stops you? I think the same things as you. I think fear. And I think that fear of running out of time is really salient because I am now in my mid-20s, one could say entering into the late 20s. And it seems like the window of opportunity whether this is true or not, it's just what it seems, is running out. And so it's like, mm-hmm. if you try different pathways, if you try and do creative things, if you try and do something else, like if that doesn't work out, then it's like, well, what's my backup? And it sort of feels like, you know, if you're on one path and it's not working out by a certain age, it's like, well, I failed. Yeah. And I don't think it has to be like that. I know people who make career changes in their 30s, 40s, 50s, but I think just the weight of adult responsibilities is starting to hit in and it's scary. Mm-hmm. And you start to get into the the age where you start to have regrets. It's it's like when you're young, when you're in college and even before, or kind of in that early 20s age, it's like for a lot of people, you maybe haven't done enough to have regrets yet. And, and you don't feel like you're far enough in life to wonder like, what if I had taken this path instead? And then as you get older and you kind of get more tied down to things, you start to have those questions. And that's a hard thing to grapple with. You know, before I wrap this up, I actually wanted to mention one more thing based off of that. I I think I was definitely struggling a bit more with like that overwhelm of like, oh, what do I want to do? How come I'm not doing what I want to do already? How come I'm not like making a lot of money? I was always like that since I was little. Am I just not ambitious anymore? Those, that's, that's, that's always been coming up. Adult responsibilities and all that stuff, I think it kind of hit hard. But there was one particular thing that happened to me, which was last year, around March 2021. I had two kidney stones hit me full force. It got stuck. If you look up the pain levels of kidney stones, it's com- comparable to that of child labor. But it was for three months. I was in pain for three months because I was getting misdiagnosed all the time by doctors. It was a very, very, very brutal time for me because I was also, and this is new, but I haven't had to deal with it since, is that I was having my first panic attacks. Life was hitting hard at that time. A lot of people don't know that, but it was it was very, very like, it was low, but fuck, like I had to, it was, su- it was such a jolt to me as like, fuck. We, we don't have that much time in this world. But not only that, it's not like time's just going to come to a cut. The time you have to enjoy your full capacity as a, and you're with your body degradates over time. Sometimes it might hit sooner for others. So I was like, there was a day where I was just like in the hospital for like, there were three surgeries. The first one was to like put a stent and clear your ability to like actually, I can actually function. And I was just there, like, resting and like, shit, I needed this break. Realistically, I can't just go to Europe and get my master's. Like, at least not right away. 
Not if I'm going to be having issues like this. I can't walk. I can't just get up and do my own shit. Like I had to order DoorDash and spend all my fucking savings on that to survive for a while. And the bills were fucking, they weren't as bad because I, I have the insurance, but fuck. Like it made me think like, okay, well, this is the most pain I will ever physically deal with in my life. Maybe even mentally, but after like a few months I had recovered and like I was back at work again and I stopped worrying so much because I'm like, this is way worse pain than any overwhelm of decisions whoever get to me. Like I finally understood what that, not entirely because it's different, but I understood what a, that survivorship mindset felt like, like nothing else matters. And like, I have a, a lot more compassion now for people that if they have to live life a certain way, I'm not here to judge them. Like you got to pay for your kid and like, you know, you got to, that's, that's, that's tough, you know, like that's your priority and you got to do it with dignity. I walked away with it like more positive. Like I'm very proud of the fact that I dealt with that because that was intense and I'll never forget that. And prior to who I was before that, I was definitely soft as hell in my mind. Like this dude couldn't deal with like going to work and like dealing with an angry customer. And now it's like, eh, nothing matters anymore because if something like that ever happens again, I know I'm toughing through it. and. It's such a rare thing to happen at, at 24, 25. And, and some of us are going to go through stuff like that. Some of us already have. And it's going to be tough. But I say, like, there's always a positive outcome from anything like that that happens to us. Or anything, like, that makes us feel like we're less than or incapable. Yeah. For sure. And in, in the words of Kelly Clarkson, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> All right. Last question for you, Sal. I think one of the reasons that you wanted to do this interview and why a lot of people want to come on the show is because they identify with that label of, of being a misfit. And so you've expressed to me that kind of your mentality and your worldview is often different from how a lot of other people around you seem to think. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that and if you could kind of talk about how you overcame that or if it's not something you feel like you had to overcome. Mindset wise, again, I've always like, I've never fit into groups in school at all, like, or even at work. I've always been the floater. And um, I know that a lot of people, to some degree, do relate to that. I just never felt like it was a bad, bad thing. I was always like, oh, this is cool. I, I know how to connect with different kinds of people. And I just happen to like music. I would say that where I did feel very different was was when I left my home or even at home too. Like there was a generational and immigrant mindset that was like different than mine. I was born in, I was born in the States. So I had the privilege to like be exposed to more things than what my parents saw and have a different worldview. But that almost became a problem when I showed up to Olaf because it's like, I have all these ideas, but no one wants to fucking listen to me. So fuck all y'all. I'm going to make this happen. And that was Urban Sounds. That was a manifestation of me taking what I already had experienced and just putting it out there for people. Let them judge. Hey, I, there were a couple of people that were like, we don't want to deal with this type of shit. Like, I don't, I don't talk too much about that, but like there was, there was, there was some weirdness from some people's being too, uh, you know, not being positive receptive but when you do something you put yourself out there it always happens and um it's i don't know i've always had people reminding me as well that it's okay to be kind of alone in, in that path of thinking a certain way like i want to make the best of what it is that i've got 
And um, I do want to remind people who come from that dual, I guess, a duality experience in the sense that maybe they were born in a place where that did not reflect how they were brought up or how their parents were brought up. And they only know one thing, but then they're being taught another. It's like we have, maybe we might not all notice it at the same time, but we have a superpower. And some of us have different facets of that superpower. I can speak Spanish and English, which is now like kind of cool. I mean, look at Bob Bonnie. He's like number one in the United States, which mainly only speaks English. Um, so it's like we have superpowers. The world's going to evolve to understand that what we have and what we've seen is not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing. And, you know, the more we talk about it, the more we'll normalize those things being good. And um, the next generation will have their own challenges, but they won't be the same ones we had. And that's my, uh, I think that's, I feel that sense of pride. And I think that's what keeps me at the job I have now is that I see the changes materialize. Kids are so much more open about conversation of, of sexuality and like how fluidity and it's second nature compared to the way that we were brought up and like the way my parents were brought up. It's uh, a much more open world out there in many ways. And um, I'm excited to see what people make of, of their lives as a result of, you know, kind of how the world is forming and what's out there. It's going to be some hardships, but we all go through those in our own way. But And we have the duty to kind of seek out the positive in that and, and find a way to provide value back in the world. That's very important and it's very necessary. And I hope that something that comes out of these podcasts that you do connects with somebody in some way. And I'm also would like to mention, please reach out, connect with us, especially, you know, if you, if you went to Olaf or didn't, like, I'm happy to chat and I, I'm such a big fan of long conversations. So yeah. Um, Where can we reach you? Yeah. You can, you can reach me on my socials. All my platforms uh, say Salvarez Music, Salvarez Music, or add me on Facebook. Or, I mean, you can add my email as well, djsalvarezus at gmail.com. Um, I'll drop all of those in the podcast description. My phone number is, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that, that's a little much, but hey. Yeah. No, no. Now, y'all, y'all can reach me through my email. And I'm happy to set up a, a time to, chat about life and i, I would i'd love to hear about you know people's experiences as well debate me too if you want to like challenge me on my thinking because shoot you know i might have one way of thinking and maybe somebody else might tell me different <laughs> <laughs> love it not many people are put that out there but i think that's great oh yeah please do i'd love to thanks for being here sal it was a great conversation as always and i'll make sure to put all the links for your music all right thank you annie have a good one That was Sal Alvarez of Salvarez Music. I'll include links to his music as well, which you can also find by searching his musician name, Salvarez. That's Alvarez with an S. Also, thank you to Gabe Bordunker for the theme music. I'm your host, Annie Prafke, and thank you for listening to Misfits. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
Please follow us on Twitter at ACXPMisfits and on Instagram at ACXPMisfits, where you can also send us a message with ideas for the show or let us know if you or anyone you know would like to come on as a guest. We'd love to have you.